are many questions in life, aren't there, that can have a profound impact on your life, depending on how you answer them. <clears throat> For example, will you marry me? And you can work out which way has a profound impact. Is it a girl or is it a boy? Have I got the job? Have I passed? And there are many, many others. Obviously, some are more significant than others. I wonder, though, would you agree the most significant question that somebody can ask and the one that you need to answer is, who do you say that Jesus is? This morning, we're going to be considering that exact question because that's what we find in this passage. It's a question that we all need to consider and it's a question we all need to answer for ultimately our futures depend on how we will answer it. The Bible teaches us that it's only those who confess with their mouths and believe in the heart that Jesus is the Lord's and he raised, rose from the dead. It's only then that they will be saved. Who Jesus is, is at the heart of the gospel we believe. And who Jesus is, is at the heart of the gospel we proclaim. Perhaps then it may surprise you that in this passage we saw in verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, or rather he strictly charged them, do not tell anyone that I am the Christ. Why would Jesus be telling his disciples not to tell anyone who he truly was? Well, God willing, as we examine this passage, all will become clear. But let's first consider, why do we have this passage here? What's happening at this time? Well, I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, the title of this set of verses is Peter Confesses Jesus as the Christ. And that's a very good summary of this passage. We also have the account in Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. But if you were to turn to those accounts, you would find they differ slightly to what Matthew records. The verses in um, verses 17 to 19, what Matthew records there, is not captured in Mark's or Luke's accounts. So perhaps the first question that springs to your mind is, why does Matthew include these verses when the other gospel writers do not? Well, the answer is because each of the gospel writers are focusing on something different. Whilst they're all giving us facts about Jesus, they all have different themes. And Matthew is telling us these things in these verses because it applies to his theme. Matthew wants to tell us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the true king. He is the king of kings. And these verses help tell that. I wonder, did you watch the coronation of King Charles III? Yeah? I don't know whether you noticed, but throughout that, it was mentioning that even though he was going to be king, he is not sovereign over all. In fact, the whole coronation service started with a young boy approaching the king and saying, we welcome you in the name of the King of the Kings. And then King Charles replied, in his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. I didn't know what was going to happen in the coronation. I've never seen a coronation. Maybe none of you have. I thought, wow, what a way for a coronation to start. And it's the right way it's to start. But I wonder how many people watching, do they fully appreciate what was said in those two lines? They don't understand, really, who the King of Kings is. And it was no different in Jesus' day. As the Jewish people in Jesus' day heard the prophecies about a coming Messiah, they didn't understand what was meant by that. And Matthew knows this. And so he thought, therefore ensures in his writings that he details something of what it means that Jesus will be the King of Kings, or what his kingdom will look like. And so this passage that we're going to look at this morning, it marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And we can see that from the he starts in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began. Before this point in his ministry, Jesus not, was not seeking to teach everyone who he was. He wasn't teaching them what 
he would have to face in Jerusalem. But now the time has come that Jesus has to tell his disciples of all that he's going to face in Jerusalem. But before he does that, he has to have this conversation with his disciples. And so this conversation is a timely conversation. And that's going to be my first point this morning. I'll have four points. The first one, a timely conversation. And there's going to be a challenging question, an empowering instruction, and a surprising command. So what do I mean by a timely conversation? Well, as I said, it's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. After this point, Jesus is going to start to tell his disciples of how he's going to suffer, all that he has to face in Jerusalem. But he knows that in order for them to cope with what they will witness and experience, they need to be reminded of who he is. That's why Jesus asked these questions at this point, to prepare the disciples for what they're going to face. And it is just the disciples he's having this conversation with. Once he's been preaching, we are then told he had this conversation with his disciples. He's not openly declaring his identity for all to see. And if you read through the previous chapters of Matthew, you will see that even though Jesus taught the people, you could see there was hints of something different. He never actually told people he was the Messiah. The people recognized there was something special about him. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are told, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. There were also times in his teaching that he hinted that he was the Messiah. He never actually told them. We have Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So even though he's hinting that he's fulfilling some prophecies, he never actually called himself the Messiah. As many occasions he confirmed he was, but he never used the phrase, I am the Christ. The phrase he used is the Son of Man. And that's what we find in this passage in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now this phrase, Son of Man, is also an alternative um, phrase for a Messiah that's used in prophecies like Daniel 7. But the Jewish people were not looking for that sort of Messiah. They were looking for a conquering hero that would relinquish the Roman control. But the Son of Man that's referred to in Daniel 7 is a suffering Messiah, very similar to what we see in Isaiah 53. You'll also see, if you look at the miracles of Jesus before this point, that as he performed the miracles, people recognized that there was something special about them. If you think in Matthew 8, when Jesus healed the Roman centurion's daughter, people recognized that he had power and authority over sickness and death. And then we have, when he was in the boat with the disciples, he had power and authority over the storm. The waves and the winds and the storm obeyed his voice, when all he had to say was, be still. And then also in Matthew 8, we have when he cast out the demons, he had power and authority over demonic powers. But on each occasion when he demonstrates this power and authority, people make comments about where he gets his power from. But you will notice he never acknowledges their questions. He never answers where he gets his power from. But then we come to this passage, and we can see that Jesus is seeking to find out who people think he is. Perhaps I don't need to say it, but Jesus is not asking the disciples these questions to find out who the people think he is or who the disciples see him as, for he already knows. The fact he's God, he already knows what they're thinking. He knows how they view him, how the people view it. So why does Jesus ask these questions? Well, as I said, it's to prepare the disciples for what they're going to face. And that brings me on to my next point, a challenging question. The first question that Jesus asked the disciples is, who do people say 
that the Son of Man is. Perhaps it's surprising. Why is Jesus asking the disciples who the crowds think that Jesus is? Why is it important for the disciples to think about who the people thought he was? Well, as we look at these questions, all will become clear. The disciples had obviously been with Jesus. They were traveling around with him. They'd seen him perform miracles. They'd heard him teach. They would have seen people's reactions and heard their responses. Perhaps as they've been amongst the crowd, they've heard the whispered conversations and the comments made about Jesus. So Jesus asked this question to get them to consider who the crowds thought he was. Um, we can see in Matthew uh, 8 that some people recognized that he was the Lord Jesus Christ and they put their faith in him. But Jesus is asking the disciples, who do the crowds in general say that I am? Now, how do they answer? And if we look at verse 14, we can see that the word in matters. It starts, and they said. It's evident then that more than one of the disciples answered. Perhaps they had conversations amongst themselves, sharing with each other things that they'd heard said. And then maybe they offered up to Jesus a general consensus. But we are told we have their answer. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People recognized there was something different about Jesus, something special. And don't these names indicate this? Yeah, in providing these answers, especially the fact it's a prophet, they recognize there was something from God in Jesus. For that's what a prophet is, a messenger from God. They were bringing a message from God. But the people weren't able to recognize fully who Jesus was. They weren't able to see that he was the son of God, the long-awaited prophesied Messiah. As a whole, those that heard Jesus, those that had seen his miracles, they were not able to determine for themselves who he was. But now we come to verse 15, where Jesus turns to the disciples and asks them, but who do you say that I am? And this, the answer this time is not given by several of the disciples. It's just given by Simon Peter. Even though the Jesus is asking them the plural you. Only Peter gave them the answer. And when you think of who Peter was, wasn't he the bold, outspoken disciple? The first one to do anything? The first one to say something? It's not surprising, really, that he was the one to answer the question. So how does he answer it? Well, he recognizes and acknowledges exactly who Jesus is, doesn't he? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The answer that Mark records is, you are the Christ. And Luke records it as the Christ of God. And whilst they differ slightly, they all make it clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one. And so at this point, we need to ask the question, why were the disciples able to identify Jesus as Messiah, but the crowds were not? Well, let me firstly say it was not because they were smarter than everyone else. They were not cleverer. It was not because they had more intimate conversations with him or spent more time with him. It was not because they witnessed more miracles. It was not because they were more spiritual than anyone else. If anything, they were probably less. If you remember who the disciples were, they were a mixed bag of men, weren't they? There were some fishermen. And I don't mean to be little fishermen. My dad's a fisherman. And they're very skilled people. But they're not known, known to be clever, intellectual people, are they? They may know all about the tides and stuff like that, but they weren't known to be big thinkers. So how were they able to recognize Jesus to be the Messiah? Well, only because God revealed it to them. And Jesus makes this quite clear in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus is making it clear to Peter and the other disciples the only way they can determine for themselves who Jesus was was because God the Father had shown them. There was no possibility that they could work it out for themselves. They wouldn't be able to weigh up all that they'd heard, all that they'd seen, and logically conclude that he was the Messiah. That was why the crowds couldn't do it. In fact, flesh and blood cannot do it. And so now we can start to understand why Jesus asked that first question. Why did he want the disciples to consider who the crowds thought he was? To serve as contrast. It was to highlight the fact that the disciples were only able to see who Jesus was because God revealed it to them. As I said, they weren't special. They were just the same as everyone else. They were just as blind as everyone else as to see, to see who Jesus was. And it's the same with us. It's the same with all mankind. The Bible makes it clear. We cannot know or recognize who Jesus is or even comprehend anything about God because we are ignorant to it. We are in the dark. There's a verse in Ephesians 4. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. <coughs> the only way that we're able to see who Jesus is, the only way we can obtain knowledge and understanding about things of God is when he provides his light to show us. It's only when he, through the working of the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes and hearts that we can see who Jesus is. After Jesus explained all this to the disciples, it's clear that Peter finally got it. He understood, for in his second book he writes, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And it's something that we need to recognize as well. We've not come to recognize and know Jesus to be the son of God by ourselves. We cannot see him as a savior by ourselves. We are not smarter or better than anyone else. It's not that we've convinced ourselves, weighing up all the evidence and concluded and been persuaded that he is Jesus. Our flesh and blood cannot do this for us. But God's divine power has granted to us all things, all knowledge and understanding. He has opened our eyes, he has opened our hearts to see who Jesus is. <coughs> the very fact that we can be Christians, the very fact that we can enjoy every heavenly gift is solely God's work. We've not been chosen or called, redeemed, accepted because of our merit, but by his glory, by his goodness and his virtue and grace. I want to try and illustrate this with a game with the kids. So hands up if you know the game Guess Who. Yeah, a few? Yeah. Um, we're going to play it with a slight twist. Before the service, I hope you didn't see me doing it, by the way. Uh, before the service, I asked somebody to be a volunteer. And I told that person that for every child that goes up to them after the service and asks them for a pack of sweets, they can give them a pack of sweets. Okay? So children, what you need to work out is who that person is. Now, I know you're probably like the children in my church, quite smart. And you go up to everyone until you came to the person who had the sweets. You're not allowed to do that. You can only go up to one person and you have to be 100% sure that the person you're going to has got the sweets. So hands up if you know who the person is. You do? Clever boy. <laughs> hands up if you're 100% sure you know who to go up to and ask the sweets. Anyone? No. Shall I give you some clues? Yeah. Okay. This person's a man. Yeah. And he lives around this area. Do, do you know who it is? Oh, no. Everyone's looking. Hands up if you know. 100% certain. No. Nobody knows. So how are you going to go up to that person? I don't know. Shall I tell you? Yeah. 
I'll tell you who I've given some sweets to, and if you go up to the master service, they'll give you some sweets. It's Nathaniel. Yeah. Okay. Let's break that game down. Let's look at all the different stages. So stage one, who was it who chose a person here and gave them some sweets to give to the children? Me. Okay. Who was it who chose Jesus to be the savior of the world? Who was it who sent him to the world so that we can be made right with God? Anyone? God. God the Father, yeah? Okay, stage two. How did the children know there was someone here that had sweets to give them? Yeah. Yeah, because I told you. Yeah, I told you that there's someone here with sweets. How do we know that God has provided a savior? Because God has told us. Throughout the whole Bible, it's clear that not only has God promised a savior, but he's provided a savior. Stage three. How did the children know what to look for in that person who was going to give them sweets? I gave you clues, didn't I? Yeah. How do we know what God's promised savior would be like? God has given us clues. In all the prophecies he's given us about the Messiah, he gives us clues to who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. Stage four. How were the children able to know for sure who had the sweets? I told you, didn't I? Yeah. Would you have been able to know without me telling you for sure? No. But because I confirmed to you who it was, you're now able to go to that person and ask for sweets. How do we know that Jesus is God's promised savior? Because God tells us. He opens our eyes and our hearts so that we can see, so we can be 100% sure that he is able to save us from our sins. It's only because of what God has done in our hearts that we can put our faith and trust in Jesus. In all the stages of the game, it's only because of me that the children are now able to go to Nathaniel and ask the sweets. In the same way, it's only because God has granted to us all things that we're able to be saved from our sins. Children, one final question. Who's going to go to Nathaniel at the end and ask us some sweets? Yeah, growing up, who's going to ask for some sweets? I would imagine every child will go up to him. Why? Because children think it's a good thing to have sweets. How much greater is it to have a relationship with God? That's what we receive, isn't it, when we go to Jesus and ask him to save us from our sins. We are made right with God. That's why Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So why would you not come to Jesus to put your faith and trust in him? There is nothing better. So I hope that as we enforced what this passage is trying to say, God has given to us all things that enable us to be made right with him, to be able to have a relationship with him. He's provided the means of salvation. He's opened our eyes and hearts that we can see our need for salvation. He's opened our hearts and eyes to recognize who the Savior is. And he gives us the faith to believe in Jesus. All we have to do is simply respond. And so the question for us all this morning is, who do you say that Jesus is? Have you recognized him to be God's promised savior? Have you come to him asking for forgiveness for your sins and putting all your faith and trust in him? My prayer this morning is that all of us would know the Lord Jesus Christ to be our saviors, that God would stir our hearts to put our faith and trust in him. It's only once you've done that that you're able to say you're blessed. And that's what Jesus says to Peter, isn't it? You are blessed. That's what we can say to each other this morning if our faith and trust is in Jesus. You are blessed. And the Greek word translated means happy and blissful. 
but it's more than just a superficial happiness. In this context, blessed refers to a state of spiritual happiness, of wellness or completeness, a deep joy of the soul that only comes from knowing, as the hymn writer puts it, I am his and he is mine. It comes from knowing that you are loved with an everlasting love, an undeserved love. It comes from knowing true happiness can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a Christian, though, is not just about following Jesus and seeking to live our lives in the right way. Becoming a Christian is only the start of your life with God and your life for God. We all have a part to play in helping God build his kingdom. Not that he needs our help, but he graciously uses us, his people, to bring others to see who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples in the rest of these verses. And so we come on to my next point, an empowering instruction. An empowering instruction. The truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the foundation of the church. The disciples are to share this with others. Now the verses 18 and 19 contain a number of metaphors that sometimes are confused. People misunderstand them and they misunderstand the meaning. But when you understand these verses, you find great encouragement. For they not only tell us that Jesus is building his church, but he's using us to help. But also it gives us an assurance that his church, his people, will last forever. So in these verses, Jesus is telling disciples that Peter's declaration that Jesus is Messiah, that is what the church is built on. Nothing else but the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the solid rock on which our faith stands. That is why no power in this world, no spiritual power, not even death itself, will be able to prevent its growth. Jesus has overcome the world. He's defeated sin. He's conquered death in the grave. His kingdom, the church, will be victorious because it is victorious. And so um, he's telling his disciples here that he's going to use them to help build his kingdom. But he's also telling us, if we are believers, he's going to use us to help build his kingdom. Through us, he will enable others to see that Jesus is God's promised saviour. That's what he means in verse 19, when he says, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Jesus is using this metaphor of keys to help illustrate that in order to enter the kingdom, you have to have a key to unlock the door. There's only one door to heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The key to entering heaven through him is recognizing and believing that he is God's chosen one, the promised saviour. It is this truth that the disciples and us are to declare to others. And so now we come to the end of verse 19 that some people view as a tricky bit to understand. Jesus tells his disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And to understand this verse, we need to think back to Matthew's time. Matthew is writing to the Jews. And the phrases to bind and to loose were common Jewish legal phrases. So to understand what they mean, we need to understand that context. To bind something meant it was forbidden. To loose something meant it was allowed. So Jesus is telling the disciples, he's telling us, that whenever we declare to a person who Jesus is, and that person repents, that person has now been loosed. They have been forgiven and are allowed to enter the kingdom of God. When they declare, likewise, when we declare a message to a person who Jesus is, and that person rejects the message, that person remains bound. They are not forgiven, they are therefore not able to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, the words in the ESV and most English translations would suggest that whatever the disciples do will be done in heaven. But the actual meaning is it's already been done in heaven. Perhaps a more accurate translation would be whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven or whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. And most Bibles have a footnote to explain that. We need to be clear. The disciples and we are not given special authority to forgive people their sins. All the Bible is telling us is as we proclaim the gospel, as we tell people the truth of who Jesus is, and if those people have um, obey and reply, uh, respond, we are fulfilling what God has planned, what he has determined, and what he has willed. And so now we come to my final point. Having confirmed that Peter gave the right answer to the question, having told Peter and the disciples that Jesus is going to use them to help build his church, we find in verse 20, then he strictly charged his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. As I said at the start, that would seem a surprising thing for Jesus to say. He's been confirming in one breath that he's going to use them to declare the message that Jesus is the Messiah. But in the next breath then, he's telling them, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. In fact, it's a bit more than just telling them. He commands them. And the New King James says that. Jesus commanded the disciples, do not tell anyone I am the Christ. And we need to ensure that we understand that importance. And this wasn't the first or last time that Jesus told his disciples not to tell people that he was Messiah. If we turn over to Matthew 17 and look at verse 9, um, after G on the mountain of transfiguration, we see Jesus says this in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. But it wasn't just his disciples who Jesus told to keep his identity secret. Many who witnessed what he did or experienced his miracles were told by Jesus, don't tell anyone what I've done. We therefore need to ask, why did Jesus do this? And quite simply, it wasn't the right time for the people to know that Jesus was the Messiah. In those days, the Messiah was misunderstood. As I said, people expected this Messiah to be a great military leader. He would deliver Israel from Roman rule. And it would appear that even the disciples didn't understand who Jesus was as the Messiah. They misunderstood this phrase. It would seem they too were expecting Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire. And we can see this in verses 21 to 23. For as Jesus began to teach the disciples of how he'd be killed, we are told. Then Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter rejected Jesus' prediction that he would suffer and die. He wasn't understanding of who the Messiah was. He thought the Messiah would be a military leader. He thought Jesus could not be punished, uh, sorry, uh, killed, basically. He was looking at it from a, how a man would view it, not how God looked at it. Even though Jesus had been teaching them, he'd been educating them about what he'd have to face. He'd been teaching them about what the Messiah would be. They still did not get it. Neither would anyone else. Everybody was looking for a Messiah to free them from oppression and domination, free them from suffering. They'd be looking at it from man's viewpoint. But they need to remember to view it from God's viewpoint. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom through force or military power. His kingdom is a spiritual one, one that he brought forth by giving his life as a sacrifice for the world. The Old Testament makes it clear the Messiah will be a suffering Messiah. 
Uh, Isaiah 53 is the most obvious one. If the disciples were not fully familiar with the true notion of Messiah, how would they be able to preach the Messiah to others? So Jesus told them to wait. Wait until I've been crucified and risen from the dead, and then you'll be able to see clearly what it means that I'm the Messiah. But also, after his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit would come to empower them. And we could spend the rest of the time this morning and this evening looking at how the Holy Spirit helps them and us deliver the message that Jesus came to die for his, our sins. And it's important that we recognize that. Just as the Holy Spirit helps us see who Jesus is, it helps us as we declare, declare to others who Jesus is. But having said that, I want to close by reminding us that just as it's important that the disciples understood what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, we need to understand what it means. Obviously, the implications in Jesus' day are slightly different. We have seen God's plan fulfilled. We have seen how Jesus was killed on the cross, how he rose again. We can see how he fulfills all the prophecies. We are able to see how his kingdom is not of this world. If I was to ask you, are you familiar with what Jesus came to accomplish as Messiah, as God's promised saviour? I would imagine many of us will say yes. But do we need to ask ourselves, do those around us know what it means that Jesus is the promised saviour? Why do I say this? Well, when we seek to proclaim the gospel, we need to remember we're living in difficult times. Everyone is facing some sort of struggle, crisis or difficulty. Many people are looking for an easier life. Many people are looking for hope. Many people are looking for escape. I'm sure many people just want someone to come along and take away all their problems, all their difficulties, and just make their life easy. So we need to be careful that when we proclaim the gospel, we don't suggest, imply, or hint that by coming to Jesus and putting their faith in Jesus, everything becomes easy. It doesn't. The pressures and the difficulties of this life do not go away by becoming a Christian. And the Bible is very clear on that. We have verses such as Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The verse is telling us there is going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulty. But we will not be separated from the love of God when we face that, if we have our faith and trust in Jesus. Another example is John 16, verse 33, that tells us we will face tribulation. Jesus is speaking. Um, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, whilst this verse makes it clear that we will face tribulation, in the midst of that difficulty, we can know peace if we are in Christ. Tonight, we're going to be looking at what it means to have peace in Christ. But for this moment, uh, this morning, as I close, I want to emphasize the message and the promise of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that Jesus will deliver us from this world and all the sufferings and difficulties of it. The message is that Jesus delivers us from our sins. He delivers us from the control that sin has over us. He delivers us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He delivers us from death and makes us right with God. So what's the promise of the gospel? The promise of the gospel is that knowing that we have peace with God means that we can face the difficulties looking forward with hope. We can look forward to that day when Jesus will return in all his glory and then he will deliver us from all the difficulties, all the sufferings of this world to be with him in glory for eternity and so my final question this morning to each one of us is who do you see that Jesus is 
Is Jesus your Lord and Savior this morning? If not, then come to him. The invitation's there. Come to him. Ask God to open your eyes and hearts so you can see who Jesus is and then come to him in faith.